Parmenides and Aristotle denied the existence of the void, while Nagarjuna claimed it was voids all the way down. They all presented eloquent arguments for their views, but in the end, the void always makes the strongest case. Believers and not, in the end, we all embrace the void. this void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 105 of Embrace the Void, where it's omnia mihi graiki sunt. It's all Greek to me. That's literally the only sentence I remember from six years of Latin. This week, I'm joined by a fellow traveler on the public philosophy trail. Uh, we discuss anger and what, if anything, philosophy can do to help with anger. Uh, a lot of us are feeling anger right now, so maybe hopefully this will be a more soothing void. My guest this week is Greg Sadler, president and co-founder of Reason.io. Greg is a public philosopher who has helped popularize schools of thought like Stoicism uh, as ways to address modern problems. Um, when he's not teaching at Marquette University, you can find him on the YouTubes. Greg, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi. Or am I, am I saying hi into the void? Is that how it works? Or? Uh, into two people are allowed <laughs> to interpret this in a variety of different ways. It's just, you know, making sure you're game to commune with the void. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if some ancient philosophers and, and medieval philosophers are right, we've got plenty of voids within ourselves that we can shout into as well. Yeah, I think it's voids all the way down, right? So <laughs> I follow Nagarjuna on that one. So yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I, we've had some great interactions on Twitter. And uh, in reading through some of your material, I get the feeling that we are somewhat kindred spirits in terms of our attempts to do public philosophy. Um, I'm curious initially, do you do you share my experience that public philosopher has for a long time been a kind of pejorative term and like that maybe that's changing some in the current well, age? Yeah, it, it, it still is a pejorative term for, for some mm -hmm. people. I, I've gone to a few philosophy conferences where I've been told that uh, what I do isn't philosophy and uh, I remember handing my card. This is a Wisconsin Philosophical Association, you know, meeting. So mm -hmm. kind of low stakes, and we all went out to lunch. And I, I handed my card to somebody, and he saw that I was uh, uh, a philosophical counselor, and he, you could like see the look of disgust on his face, <laughs> the wrinkling of the nose, and he said, "Oh, you're one of them." You know, and he handed the card back to me. So uh -huh. a little, you know, a little too applied for his taste. Yeah. So there, you know, there's the. You, you know, there's all the accusations of you're dumbing things down, you're debasing things, you're you're making it too easy for people, and I, I see it more among older uh, 
older philosophers who generally have tenure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think maybe feel themselves a little bit out of step with, with what's going on. But even within like the public philosophy sphere, there's, there's quite a few gatekeepers often quite well funded who would like to control, you know, the discourse on what is public philosophy so that it doesn't include the kind of stuff that, that you and I are doing. Um, but mm-hmm. it just includes being part of a certain network or, you know, having, uh, you know, funding to do, you know, from a certain grant source to do meetings with the public in very structured ways. Um, so right. and the cool thing is, though, is they, they're not going to win because um, since it is public, we mm-hmm. get to do whatever the hell we want and see if it works. Right. The technological uh, democratizing of the Agora again, right? We, yeah, we can you know, all throw YouTube, our ideas out there. I mean, YouTube has gone through algorithm shifts and now it's a, it's a lot harder to break in. And, and I get people asking me, well, how do I, you know, how do I start a philosophy YouTube channel? And the prospects are certainly better than like, how do I get a full-time uh, teaching gig? You know, mm-hmm. um, but it's harder now to break in. But it's still one of those things where if you're doing interesting content, it, people will tune into it and, and uh, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll boost your ratings. And um, I think, part, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to get super big picture with this, but sooner or later down the line, either we're going to have to come up with something that's better. And I, by we, I mean us, us people doing public philosophy. We're going to have to come up with something that's that makes more sense than just letting the big tech companies and their algorithms decide everything mm-hmm. and better than, than the, the more, you know, uh, let's call them well-situated, well-funded public philosophy gatekeepers are offering as well, or they're going to win. They're, they're going to mm-hmm. effectively take over the spaces and we're going to get pushed to the, the margins. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they're already probably going to win, um, but I, I, I do think that you're right. It's valuable that we go down valiantly providing an alternative, um, uh, you know, small batch philosoph- artisanal uh, public philosophy. <laughs> that's um, yeah, that's a good metaphor. And, and, you know, it's hard because there is a lot of gatekeeping in a variety of different kinds of formats. I get the impression that you've had a somewhat eclectic um uh, teaching experience as well. You've taught in both academia and prisons, I saw. And I was curious, uh, first of all, which one's worse? It depends on the academic setting. Uh, uh-huh. You know, my first full-time teaching gig, it, it was being a full-time academic. I was teaching for Ball State University, and it was a mm-hmm. free program. But it was at Indiana State Prison, and I mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. Um, I probably would have stayed there if, if they hadn't phased out prison education um <laughs> naturally yeah i mean i didn't get paid that well and there were some some downsides you know you'd have to shout over fans and uh and, and mm-hmm. you know, hvac stuff so your voice would be really worn out by by the end of the day and there were lockdowns but but it was really rewarding and then i, I taught at another prison once i moved to fayetteville state university in north carolina and that was a totally different experience the prison really wasn't run very well um, there, there wasn't a, a coherent program there. They were just kind of taking mm-hmm. random classes from Fayetteville state. And there, there really wasn't any intelligent way of staffing things. Um, now I'm actually going to be teaching online in the second chance Pell program here in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, but that's completely online. So I don't get to go in and see the students, you know, they also see right. me cause I'm giving them, uh, videos that I'm, I'm, compressing and putting into the the system 
but it's, it's not as interactive. And, you know, uh, some of the places that I've taught, I've seen some extremely dysfunctional institutions uh, where, you know, you're, you're arriving there and you don't even have a contract in hand. And I, I you know, one place I taught, I didn't get an office for the first uh, half a year that I was there, but I was expected to keep office hours. And, you know, uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, there's plenty of that sort of stuff, <laughs> the nightmare stuff that you hear about. Right. And then uh-huh. other places that I, I've taught um, are really excellent. Like uh, right now, I'm not just teaching. I teach at Marquette when, when needed and they're pretty mm-hmm. decent to adjuncts. Um, but Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design is is an amazing place to teach. It's all professional students. Um, you know, they're they're in, in the art world, and uh, they want as many philosophy classes as I can develop. So I get to develop really interesting uh, courses that I wouldn't get to teach elsewhere. That's cool. And yeah, and they're really student centered, and they they they've got their act together institutionally. And what do you find? Okay. Um, no, I'm just curious when you're teaching either in prison settings or with professional students specifically, do you find that there are particular either kinds of philosophy or particular philosophers that really hit home for folks? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's often not the ones that you would expect, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, you think for the prison setting, well, you got to go in and teach Plato's credo and, and, uh, you know, Boethius and, and anything prison oriented. And a lot it seems of, a little cliche, right? Yeah, and a lot of times they're like, you know, we've, we've, sometimes they're like, look, we've already read this stuff, uh, because this is kind of standard fare. And, and sometimes they're like, you know, we want to study stuff that isn't focused on our situation that, that helps right. us to expand it. I would say that, you know, I was, I was surprised to see, because I hadn't gotten involved with the modern Stoic movement at the time that I was uh, teaching at Indiana State Prison. So that was like 2002 to 2008. Um, I was surprised to see just how popular uh, study of Stoicism was. And it wasn't just mm-hmm. the sort of like, uh, I'm doing this so I can survive the prison camp kind of uh, Admiral Stockdale uh, emphasis. It was, it was, it was tied in with, uh, some comparative philosophy. Some of the people that were, were looking at that were interested in other intentional ways of living that would, uh, you know, help them kind of fix their lives and, and uh, uh, make sense out of the, the situation that they were, they were in with very few resources. Um, the, the art school, interestingly enough, one class that I haven't been asked to teach is aesthetics. <laughs> I'm kind of happy because I, it's not an area of my, specialization. So I, I may put together a class down the line, but the students for the most part, they're, they're less interested in that because they're getting that in their other classes, you know, from sure. the other profs. Um, Who actually believe in aesthetics, right? Well, you know, I mean, I, I believe in it in the sense that I believe there's a field. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm just saying like, even it's even further down than ethics, I feel like in terms of, um, you know, appreciate how, how seriously we take it within academic philosophy. Yeah. And, and maybe some of the blame for that should be laid at the, the feet of the estheticians, you know. Sure. Um, or, you know, also the Enlightenment folks, but, you know, both, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, when I if I was ever going to put together a class and teach it, I think what I would do is I would just do what I do with my other classes, which is to give them, you know, representative figures and movements and when, mm-hmm. when I present something, I'm, I'm usually presenting it in a very sympathetic way 
um, mm-hmm. before I, I do any sort of critique because I, I, I want, I want them to come away. You know, we only get them for at most two and a half hours a week. And then, you know, some, some additional time in the course management system, if we give them, you know, plenty of resources to keep them stuck there. So, you know, we, we keep, we have to be realistic about how much we can cram into their heads. Um, so, you know, I, I try to get them to come away with some basic understanding of, of, you know, a smattering of figures. And I think that'd be easy to do with aesthetics. I, I, mm-hmm. see, I've never done it. You know? Right. So I, mean, I could be totally wrong. I, it could be, it could be that that would be my Achilles heel and I would put together a course and get in there and just be terrible at teaching it. Uh, uh-huh. who knows? I, but you, um, you use my personal favorite trick for getting people into philosophy, which is mixing it with science fiction. I saw as well, right. Oh, you do speculative science fiction, fiction. more, more. Yes. Probably, yeah. Uh, sure. Right. Um, philosophy with better special effects. Um, yeah, and it's one of the things. So I started this uh, Worlds of Speculative Fiction talk series. Uh, once a month, I go to a local library, and we've got like a reading list, and there's like a core group of people who tend to show up, and you know we read we read stuff, and I used it to do some guilty pleasure reading because I I really do enjoy hmm. um, science fiction and horror and fantasy and and some other things in in that genre, and so I picked people who I either hadn't read for a while or knew that I wanted to read more of. Like I'm a, I'm a big dickhead, you know, I, I like Philip K. Dick. So he, sure. he got in there at the start. My wife had me reading George R. R. Martin. So he got in there at the start, but I hadn't read, you know, Lewis's space trilogy since I was like in college uh, uh-huh. or, or the, you know, Mervyn Peaks, Gorman Gast. Um, and, I, and I knew that I liked them. So I, I set up this talk series. And this is actually something that maybe some of your your listeners would, would think about doing. If, if you want to have conversations about something, just go to a local library and, and suggest that you'll give free talks. And, and usually mm-hmm. you want to talk to the adult adult services librarian they're like, oh, thank God, we have you know we have spaces in the calendar. We need to fill them up. <laughs> they love that <laughs> right. kind of thing. So, so I, what I would do is I'd focus on uh, world building and the biography of the person, uh, and then philosophical themes in in the different uh, uh, narrative yeah. universes. I'd try to pick something where there's like a coherent narrative universe. And uh, it took off, and, and it's 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 you know it's going into its fifth year next year. They've already asked me back. Uh, we just did nice. August Derleth, uh, this this last one in, in August. Yeah, you've gotten into some pretty um, back catalog material now. It seems yeah, like. we're doing uh, Carl Edward Wagner's Kane stories uh, for <laughs> September. So that, uh-huh. and I've been rereading them. I haven't read them since I was a kid. Uh, and they, they held up, you know, some of the mm-hmm. authors like Michael Moorcox, Cornelius Chronicles. I remember loving that when I was a college student and a teenager. Right. Yeah. I was a big fan of the Elric sagas. Well, the Elric stuff is still good. The Cornelius Chronicles, eh, not so much. <laughs> not so, that didn't age well. No. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it was an ambitious project, uh, and kind of mm-hmm. cool when you think about what he was doing, but it, it just, I don't know. It just didn't, uh. It yeah. doesn't translate well to our our present. We clearly need to get you over on the Philosophers in Space podcast at some point. Are there? What is that? That's my other podcast that I do with Thomas Smith, where we do exactly the same thing you're describing in oh, podcast really? form. We oh yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, we um, you know take an episode of something or a movie or a book or whatever and combine it with a philosophical concept. I'll uh, I'll shoot you some links afterwards. That sounds good. I will say one other thing too about it. So. 
the first like two years, I just picked all the authors myself and, and I was mm-hmm. going through people I wanted to do and the people involved in it were, were okay with letting me do that. And then by the third year, they were like, you know, you really should do X, Y, Z because you, you've left them <laughs> out. So, so the third mm-hmm. year I started uh, polling them and I started polling people online and I would reserve about uh, four or five slots for, for uh, authors who I hadn't read and then they would suggest and, uh, you know, it, it usually turned out really great because I, you know, the, my, my fans are pretty smart. So, uh, mm-hmm. they, they, they didn't make any, any terrible suggestions where I was like, Oh, this is awful. Instead it, <laughs> it was the opposite where I was like, Oh, can't believe I never read Octavia Butler, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so it's been, it's been quite nice. <laughs> One of my listeners just literally just told me to buy a Butler book. That's oh, so really? Funny. Yeah, I spent this past summer doing reading lists from our listeners, and it's just been a wonderful summer of stuff that I'd never read. Because, like, my background in science fiction was much more movie and television-oriented. Okay, yeah. And I had read some of the classics, but, like, hadn't kept up with a lot of modern written science fiction. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. There's, this is something that we've we've talked about in those sessions. There's uh, There's a lot of great... Uh, sci-fi being done, especially on, you know, um, the platforms that are doing streaming and, and have plenty to invest, like like Amazon and Netflix. Yep, and, yep, yep. Uh, They're keeping us very busy. Yeah, and, and, and actually, I think doing, I think that's actually like a new genre. It's not TV anymore. It's not movies. It's, it's like its own thing. And that's, that's, you know, quite good. But there's some, there's some books or novel novel series where you're like, I don't know how the hell they would possibly ever adapt this and make it work, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and we're, it's interesting. We're starting to slowly see several of those get picked up. So Sandman, the graphic novel series is getting finally, it seems like turned into something. Uh, Good Omens was successfully done. Like, I think you're right that it's a mix of, you know, these companies that are able to make content having, a lot more resources and the technology, frankly, having caught up with a lot of the fiction. Yeah, that's so true. Th- there's a lot of great stuff that can be done out there. Yeah. I, so so I'm curious, do you have favorites? Do you have like ones that you could talk about for endlessly and never get bored talking you, about you mean this particular thing? In terms thing? of uh, like t- in terms t- of fiction. Shows and... Yeah, or books or movies. Any you know, like Yeah, I you mean, know, um I I've got series and authors that I'm really into. I mentioned Philip K. Dick, you know, I, I, Mm -hmm. if I had the time, I would actually like to write a book, which is just essentially like a glossary of taking different philosophical, religious, and psychological concepts that he brings up in different works and saying, okay, here's, here's what he, here's what he's saying about it. Here's what, um, what the, the history of the term actually is. Um, and just put together a book like that because I think it would be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It'd be really helpful. What do you think are his strongest works, or the ones that you enjoy the most? Oh, I also love Philip K. Dick. In terms of uh, novels, uh, oh, or short stories. Yeah, I, I mean, Man in the High Castle is really great, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you read the stuff that Dick himself has to say about it and um, about the Oracle in general, the the I Ching. Um, he credits the Oracle mm-hmm. for helping him to produce the novel, but he also says that it's deceptive. Uh, it's in mm-hmm. some interview that was recorded. I don't know if there's a text of the interview, but it's, it's quite, quite interesting to hear him talking about that. 
um, Scanner Darkly is uh, as a book. The movie wasn't oh, bad, yeah. but as a book, it's I, amazing. I really think the, the movie is probably the the most honest, faithful adaptation of a Philip K. Dick story out there in terms of getting the most things right and adding in the least number of weird other things. Yeah, I think you're um, right. I'm sort of like circling through the the ones in my head. Um, it, it usually tends to be the case that they'll take like an idea from a story and then really mm-hmm. run with it, you know, and fill in a bunch of action sequences. Yeah. Which, which, um, you know, it's not bad, but, um, sure. it's not as good as, the- you know, minority report is fine. Total recall is, you know, they're, they're good. They're enjoyable movies in a variety of ways, but yeah. they, they often lose, I think some of the spirit of Philip K. Dick's weird, slightly manic drug addled perspective on reality. Yeah. I mean, the Blade Runner ones are kind of interesting to think about in that respect. Um, They definitely deviate from the novel, but they're, they're creating a new additional world in their own respect. Mm -hmm. What did, what did you make of the, the more recent, was it 2049? I think it's called. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, I I'm not a big fan of the first one. Mm. I I don't like Rid- Ridley Scott's version of um, that story, and I think that it's it's there's there's some good moments in it that um, would would have been better in a different movie. I feel like yeah. so I'm I'm not a huge fan to begin with, and then the second one I thought was it didn't add anything special and amazing on top of the first one. So if I wasn't in love with that, it wasn't really going to get me there. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose for me, because of, you know, I'm, I'm turning 49 in uh, less than a week. And so when blade, the first blade runner came out, it was kind of a big thing in my childhood. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's sort of the way that star Wars, uh, which is, you know, from the same era was for a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I, I got captivated with with Blade Runner in, in much the same way. Of course, there weren't there wasn't you know as far as I know action figures or anything else that you could do with it, but um, you know raised, raised a lot of interesting issues. And and it had a you know it wasn't as deep as as uh, the Dick book, of course, but that was mm-hmm. great for somebody who was an adolescent because you're not really ready for depth as an adolescent. Sure. Yeah. No, and it has some really great performances in it. It's just that the pacing is so bad. Yeah. Um. But okay. So maybe let's shift away a little bit from our our cultural uh, pontificating, and we talk a little bit some about philosophy. Sure. I'm I'm curious, just broadly speaking, what your how you would self-identify philosophically in terms of your particularly ethical and meta-ethical perspectives. I got the impression that you came from potentially somewhat of a theistic background. Sort if that's of. Accurate. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, like a lot of kids here in Wisconsin, I was raised Catholic. I, I grew up in an area where um, out in the sticks where you're either Catholic or Lutheran or, or if you're from the town of Wales, you're a Presbyterian. Uh, but nobody really knew anything because catechesis was just absolutely terrible in the, in the 1970s in the Midwest. Um, and, and you would basically get, you know, the God is love. Let's all be nice to each other. Uh, shtick from, from, mm-hmm. the, you know, people who embraced Vatican II, or you would get the shut up and don't ask any questions shtick from people who weren't so keen on, on Vatican II. And uh, so as, as a result, I, you know, I, 
had parents that made made me go to church and nobody knew anything and could tell you anything. And by the time that I was 16, I had left. And that was while I was in a Catholic school. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, they were, they were pretty cool about that. They'd let us like, you know, they made us go to mass, but we could sit down and protest, you know, typical adolescent sort of thing, you know? Um, and, and, and interestingly, I, I took a, a philosophy class there that was listed hmm. as philosophy that was terrible. And had that been the only philosophy class I, I'd taken, I think I, I wouldn't have studied philosophy at all. Why was it particularly terrible? Uh, you know, the, the teacher used this um, book by Marvin, I think it's Marvin Gardner or Martin Gardner, The Wise of a Philosophical Scrivener is the textbook. And he, he's, he was basically like a, a column writer for some science magazine and he cobbled together a bunch of essays about like why he wasn't a capitalist, why he wasn't a communist, why he wasn't this and that. And, you know, it wasn't uh, it was very dry reading and the, the teacher didn't teach very well. And then the thing that capped it for me was he did not want any sort of creative thinking going on. He would ask uh-huh. questions on the test. Like um, if you were God, would you have made God's existence difficult or easy to, <laughs> and I, my answer to that was, um, I would have made it very difficult to prove. And then if anybody did manage to prove it, I would kill them, uh, with a lightning bolt, uh, so that everybody <laughs> else could then continue the quest and, and, you know, be engaged with things. And he gave me a zero and I was like, why'd you give me a zero? <laughs> and he, and he said, the test presupposes the class. And so, you know, what that translated into is here's the answers I want back from you on the test regurgitate them. And, and most of the students are, you know, perfectly content to do that sort of thing. But, but I wasn't, I, I had, you know, I had curiosity and I wanted to. You sound like a sadistic and malevolent child. <laughs> well, I was a pain in the ass, not just, <laughs> not just in my teens, but. If I was God, I'd be a huge dick. I'd go around burying a bunch of fossils and stuff, just fucking with people. Well, I, I, it wasn't just that. It was that it would give them, it would give them a continual task to work on. You know, because people get into that, right? So, so it's not sure. Give them a treadmill. Yeah, yeah. But, but, what, but I will say a little bit bit of a digression is when I have to deal with students who are a pain in the ass, uh, <laughs> and I, I get them occasionally, and, and some of them are it's because they're grade grubbing or doing the usual kind of like slacker stuff. But you get the like you know A students who want to do better, and they they pester you and all that. I remind myself that I was that guy when I was an undergraduate, and I think about. What a what a pain I must have been for my my poor professors, even into graduate mm-hmm. school. You know, sure. Um, I just sort of wore them down. I would write the kind of papers that I wanted to write, and uh, I could I could get away with it. Um, and so, you know, that helps me put it in perspective that I should you know I should approach them in the same way that my professors uh, pr- approached me, which was with a kind of uh, generosity rather than just uh-huh. shutting them down. But but going so going back to it, I, I took another uh, class. It was actually a sacraments class, and the nun who was supposed to teach it got sick and unfortunately died during the semester. So they brought in this guy from Seattle as a substitute, and I don't know what his his full name was. I just know he was Mister Lorenzo, and he had had an Augustinian conversion, and so he's a huge fan of Augustine. And he said, um, you know, we're going to teach you about the sacraments here, so I'm going to teach you what Augustine has to say about it. But in order for you to understand Augustine, because he was a, 
intellectual of his time. I'm going to have to teach you a bit about what was going on in, in you know, culture and, and literature. So we're going to start with Plato, and then we're going to do some Aristotle, and then I'll teach you about Manichaeism, and then we can get into Augustine and talk about mm-hmm. his confessions. And the, the class, for the most part, they hated it because he, he would just get up to the blackboard and put stuff on the blackboard, and then he'd expect us to, like, talk about it. And, you know, so mm-hmm. no textbook, just recommendations, and uh, they'd be like, what the hell is going to be on the test? And he'd be like, oh, we'll figure that out later on. <laughs> and I right. loved it. And uh, so that was my, my actual introduction to, to genuine philosophy in, in a religion class. By, Did you end up an Augustinian? No. As, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I tell people I'm an eclectic. Okay. So I draw upon a, a, a pluralist. Of, yeah. If, if you like that terminology, um, I think of myself as sort of a modeling myself after Cicero. So Cicero identifies with the academic school, which, which at that time had moved from Platonism into a kind of uh, uh, skepticism that could sometimes be extreme with some of the figures and could sometimes be mitigated um, or, or, you know, sort of moderate with, with others. And his, his, what he liked to do in his works is to, take a bunch of different points of view and present them competently and then say, well, I like this part of this one. And I like this part of this one. This I find totally implausible. Here's why. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing I, I like to do myself. So I draw upon, you know, uh, the Platonic tradition going through middle Platonism, uh, not that big on Neoplatonism, but, but, you know, mm-hmm. and then the Aristotelian tradition, the Stoics, you, you know, the Epicureans occasionally they, they have some interesting things to say. Um, we're finding out more and more as Philodemus actually gets translated uh, because we suffered from a, a loss of the Epicurean canon. And then early Christian mm-hmm. thinkers. Um, I like Augustine, but I, I like Lactantius and uh, John Cassian and, uh, you know, Gregory just as much as I like Augustine and Boethius, you know. Um, and then, you know, there's some some modern thinkers who I particularly like, and I draw upon the existentialists quite a bit as well. And I'm not a Hegelian, but I do the half-hour Hegel project because uh, uh-huh. nobody else will do it. Because uh, <laughs> nobody else wants to do Hegel? Well, nobody's willing to take on... I mean, the half-hour Hegel project is is me doing a line-by-line commentary mm-hmm. in the end of every single paragraph in the phenomenology. And I've I've gotten through three quarters of it and I've been stalled for about four months because I've been teaching so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's about 270 or 280 videos that are about a half an hour long in the, the series. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's not a lot of people who want to want to do that, that sort of work. The closest thing is David Harvey with his Marx lectures. Um, yeah. And then it seems he, like everybody just wants to talk stoicism, right? Yeah, and I, I did a I did a thing like that on Epictetus's Enchiridion. Came to to like uh, twenty three half hour videos. Mm-hmm. So you like Epictetus a fair bit, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I really, you know, I particularly like his uh, his style, which mm-hmm. you know we we don't know that it's completely him because Arian is his uh, his his writer. Uh huh. So Arian would bear the same relation to him as um, Xenophon does to Socrates. And Arian actually modeled himself after Xenophon. Both of them are military guys. Both of them wanted to memorialize their, their teacher. Um, so there, there probably was a lot of Epictetus that we just didn't get 
because uh-huh. Arian wasn't interested in that stuff. But what I have we, to say, oh, go ahead. No, the more I engage with Epictetus, the, the more I struggle with it as as feeling like not not quite far enough as where I want things to go in terms of recognizing the absence of control and and oh, especially okay. in terms of focusing on the individual a little too much in my opinion well if you read the discourses you... he thinks mm-hmm. and this is also there in the end Caridian, we have we have roles and these are um these are what give us our duties our our things that we ought to do and mm-hmm. we don't we don't choose them they're out of our control um, but as a, you know, like I, I, I mean, in a certain sense, I chose to have kids, <laughs> although I didn't choose to have the exact kids that I have. Um, and even, even whatever effort you put in to try to, you know, make your kids turn out a certain way, it's usually pr- pretty, uh, futile, you know? Um, and Epictetus would say as a father, I, if I, if I'm actually going to do what I ought to do, if I'm going to develop towards eudaimonia, that encompasses my duties towards those kids, even if they act like jerks to me. Um, well, but he has a weird mixed bag about that, it feels like to me, because he also says that if your kid is immoral, you should, rather than striving too hard to try to change that, you should just accept it. Um, right, in that one particular passage. I think you're talking about a, a brother, right? Rather than a kid? Uh, no, I think he talks specifically about a son. He says if your son is is wicked, um, better to accept it than than sort of be miserable in trying to get your son to be better. And I mean, like this is this is where I have a little bit of trouble with stoicism, yeah. even though I'm sympathetic to the project overall. Is that like I feel like sometimes it says. You know, the thing to do is, and, and this is accurate, right? This is true in a sense, right? The thing to do is um, detach yourself, not care. Other times the thing to do is to do the right thing, though it's not entirely clear how the motivation works sometimes oh, in those situations. Well, I, I, I think, think there's an easy resolution to that. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that you don't care. It's mm-hmm. that you don't allow your caring to result in all these negative affects when it doesn't turn out the way that, that you'd like it to turn out. You know, a prime example of that is the, the third uh, little chapter in the Enchiridion, the one that really throws a lot of people where he's like, uh, you know, when you kiss your, your wife or your right. child, remind themselves, remind your, yourself of what, what their nature is. So when they die, you don't feel that bad. But if you read the, the what precedes that, it's... Um, in the Greek, it's uh, if you are in the English, it says if you're fond of somebody, but the Greek is actually um, uh, referring to philostorgia, which means if you have familial affection towards somebody, if you love them as, as, as a kid, that mm-hmm. um, you don't stop loving them because um, you, you remind yourself that they can die. Um, you're just being realistic about, about things and it doesn't prevent you from acting in any way whatsoever. You can, you can still, um, you know, if, if you think your kid is doing the wrong thing, you can tell them, Hey, uh, I think you're screwing up. There's nothing right. that you, you shouldn't do that. Just, you know, you can't, you can't r- realistically expect that that's actually going to produce the change that you're looking for. Cause that's up to them. Yeah. I guess I, 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 I find that part tricky and it, it, it ties into what we were, well, the main topic we were going to talk about today. There's prudence. And that's, that's one of the missing things. It's not a, like a, it's not as if there's like an algorithm or a neat set of, uh, 
Yeah, I'm just not sure that prudence is necessarily the right answer in the sense that um, it seems like there can be a conflict where... Well, let me put it this way, right? If I genuinely care about the people that I care about fully enough, Mm. it seems to me that there's no way to avoid some level of attachment to them, and with that, some level of the kinds of emotional states that Stoicism you know, recommends against. Yeah, Um, and there's two things to say. So attachment is is one of those, you know, analogous or or equivocal terms. It can mean a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. I think the Stoics are not against all forms of attachment. There's, unfortunately, there's a lot, in the modern Stoic movement, there's a lot of people out there who want to try to simplify Stoicism. So they provide Mm -hmm. these kind of bullet point or, you know, nutshell, you know, interpretations of them, which are usually, when you look at the core text, usually wrong. And Seneca right. himself, you know, says to, to Lucilius, who's looking for precisely that sort of stuff, you're not going to, I'm, I'm going to loosely paraphrase, you can't reduce Stoicism to sound bites. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you want maxims from me, I'm not going to give them to you, he says, because they're part of a systematic um, structure that you need to mm-hmm. know. And then he says, well, ah, fine, you want some maxims, I'll give them to you, but they're not going to do you a hell of a lot of good. And unfortunately, there's, there's in the large, you know, like now at this point, like hundreds of thousands of people involved in some of these websites, um, they're all, not all, most of them are kind of spouting this this sort of stuff. The better literature mm-hmm. out there doesn't, doesn't do that because it remains faithful to the the texts that we have, which, which are nuanced and do mm-hmm. explore these things not com- completely because they're they're somewhat fragmentary, but they 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 do they do provide explanations for this that are that are helpful for us. Um, so, go ahead. Can, can we can we try applying one specifically? Since our our main topic that I wanted to get to today was anger, oh, and yeah. I think this is a perfect right. What what do you feel like? How do you interpret I do the Stoics with regard to anger? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I do want to say one other thing too, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, like I said, I'm an eclectic. So I, I I don't agree with the Stoics on on some things. Sure. And one right. of them that you brought up. So the Stoics um, divided the emotions into these four classes. And then all the, the, the other emotions were kind of like classed under them. So the, you got like a, a, a genus and then a bunch of different species. And within, a, all, within three of them, there's what's called, a, you could call it a good affection, mm-hmm. um, you know, a eupatheia. And so like for fear, you could have eulabea, which is caution. You know, you should, you feel fear in a rational way. You don't allow it to take over for joy or delight. Um, there's, there's a, you know, charis, which is translated often as both of those. Um, for pain, the Stoics said there's never any pain that's any good. Lupe, very broadly speaking. So it's not just physical pain. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. anguish and stuff like that. And Cicero considers that in his Tusculan Disputations and basically comes down on the side of the Stoics, which is kind of, kind of interesting because he was a guy who dealt with a lot of heartache. Um, he, he saw the Republic get torn apart. He had an opportunity to be the fourth guy in the, what would have been a quadvirmate instead of a tri, trivirmate um, with Caesar and, and uh, Pompey and, and Crassus. And he, he turned them down because he thought they were all a bunch of scumbags one way or the other. And, and he also had a daughter, Tullia, who he was very, very close with, um, more, more than he was to his son. And she died. Um, and, and he was writing in part to console himself um, mm-hmm. her death. So he, he definitely knew grief. 
And he doesn't go far enough, I think, in recognizing that some forms of heartache, let's call it, are legit, mm-hmm. and we do need to feel them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the Stoics are wrong on that. And uh, sim- Same for anger, you feel yeah, like? Yeah, similarly with anger, I, I think that the Stoics are incredibly helpful in giving us mm-hmm. perspectives and practices that we can use, but I'm more Aristotelian when it comes to anger. So I think that, I think that you mm-hmm. can feel anger to the right degree at the right time for the right reason. I think that... Um, you know, we don't necessarily have to buy into Plato's tripartite psychology with Thumos as, you know, being the, the sure. part, but I don't think that really hurts. Um, I think some of the time anger really does provide us with the energy that we, we need in order to be able to stand up against injustice. The problem is that um, much of the time that people think that they're doing that, they're actually doing the wrong thing because they're misguided. And uh, all the jerks out there who are, you know, equally being angry um, mm-hmm. have convinced themselves that their anger is righteous. And, and anger is also, like a lot of the, the, the emotions that can get us in trouble, it's, it's self-reinforcing, except, you know, mm-hmm. anger... Um, Anger tends to blind us to its its extent at the time, and whether we're starting to target people who we shouldn't get angry with. It, it, you know, Aristotle says that anger syllogizes. Uh-huh. This is Nicomachean Ethics, Book uh, Seven. Um, well, Thumos, n- not necessarily Orge. So Thumos is the broader categorization. Um, and it includes anger. He says that it syllogizes. Uh-huh. It's like a hasty servant that listens to half of what's being said and then immediately runs off and starts doing tasks. And so, so if anger is going to be rightly directed, it's going to it's going to require our rational faculty to be to be you know quite developed because sure. we're not we're not really all that rational. <laughs> you know? so, so you're you're maybe at least a little sympathetic to Hume on this as well, in the sense that we do need the passions to motivate and. And yeah, reason you know, to direct. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that Hume often gets, I think, misinterpreted on this because people, you know, zero in again on that one soundbite of, you know, reason is and can only be the slave of the passions, right? But you sure. look at all the surrounding material and he talks about ways in which um, passions can, in fact, be rational or irrational because they they are yeah because he's an objectivist i think people get this wrong yeah i agree yeah they 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 turn him into yeah something quite quite different than than he is i mean he wouldn't have he clearly thinks some things ought to entice the passions and some things ought not to exactly you know and and Mm -hmm. there is ought distinction too right so people are they, they they love to quote that little tiny hume section and really what Hume is saying there is not that we can't ever argue from an ought to, or from an is to an ought. Um, it's rather that anytime that somebody does that, there's some oughts implicit there that we should bring mm-hmm. to light and figure out whether they're, they're right or wrong, you know? Right, exactly. So, um, so, so going back to my question of anger, anger though, right? Yeah. In the modern age, right? Should I feel angry right now? Do you feel like people should be pissed off at the moment? Oh, uh you mean just in general like well yeah because like sometimes i see especially amongst some of the like stoics not all but some who uh like you were saying sort of reduce it down to sound bites they often will height for example takes this up the idea that like 
Stoicism's conclusion is you should be a little bit less angry about the state of social inequality or something like that. Yeah. Do you do you feel like that's misguided? And do you feel like people should be angry about the current state of social injustice? I think they should be angry about it, but they should be cautiously angry. You know, I think I think a lot of both on left and right, it's really easy for a lot of people, in part because we we do so little education about the emotions in general and anger in particular to think that once they've got something that's a just cause, or at least appears to be a just cause, it's okay for them to be as angry as they like and they can shout at Mm -hmm. anybody or, you know, on the left in terms of like identity politics, you see a lot of people um, sort of like if somebody crosses the the right trip wire, now they can, they can lambast them with whatever they, they like, right. You've, you've misgendered Mm -hmm. me, you know, well, you know, being, being misgendered is probably not the end of the world. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I get. It. I think that's a li- that one particularly is a little more complicated than that. I think that there is a lot of persistent misgendering that causes specific harm. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying more broadly. That dig into it and uh, and treat cases not as abs- like each one is his own individual. Sure. Case, but it can't be this this sort of like blanket response because that that's what makes a person vicious. You know, you could have a you could be like. Imagine like, so here's a thought experiment. Somebody who is uh, the perfectly uh, right from, from a sort of societal perspective, um, you know, one particular thing and, and, and every, you know, they've been oppressed in all these different ways and everything that they do is in, in some respect, the right response, but they screw it up over and over and over again by being indiscriminate in how, how much affectivity they pour into it, how long they stay pissed off at somebody they're going to become vicious. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be good for them in, as an individual. It's not going to be good for others who have to deal with their their spillover because it's not just going to be about, say, being uh, transgender and uh, being treated badly or bullied or something like that. It'll 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 be how they treat people in the grocery store and how they interact with uh, fellow students or you know it, it's, it's yeah this is a situation you know um, and so you know they. What 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 I think we want to get people to recognize is we we have different dimensions here. We have the dimensions of whether or not somebody is dealing with an injustice or not, and whether that injustice ought to be opposed, and then their own personal development. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I say this is something. Sure. Yeah. No, I totally agree that those are separate things. Yeah. Um, it, it is tricky, I think, especially in uh, the reason I, I ask about the modern period is because I do think that we're in a situation where there are a lot of things that reasonably sort of ought to make us angry. Oh, and, yeah. and that you're you're right that that, re- that results in us feeling poisoned in such a way where we have we have these sort of reflexive reactions to lots of stimulus that that connect into these sort of justified anger reactions yeah and and um again like i said we we don't get any education or coaching on this the the only exception Mm -hmm. is if like you screw up enough and then they mandate you go to anger management and that's Mm -hmm. usually taught by people who are taking a pretty restrictive you know viewpoint on it they're not going to bring in resources from from uh, philosophy, which, I mean, they, that's, that's the cool thing about it. In ancient philosophy, they realized that anger management was a major issue, both for men and for women. Um, and also, it's, also, it's also there in early Christian thought as well, too. Um, you know, you can look at sermons by, uh, 
uh, John Chrysostom, for example. And, and mm-hmm. So there, there's all these great insights and resources there that are largely untapped. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, if we could provide these to people, I'm not saying it's like a silver bullet that would take care of everything, but it would give them some sort of uh, structure that they could use mm-hmm. to, you know, so prime example of this, um, you know, if you think about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King in his writing says that anger can be a transformative emotion. He also sure. required that before people marched, they had to do practical exercises to learn how to deal with their anger so they could direct it properly. And if you didn't measure up to that, they wouldn't let you march. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think of it like um, anger is a weapon that, you know, it, it's something that you really only want to unsheathe if you're actually going to use. And that if you're just kind of waving that weapon around all of the time, it loses a lot of its impact, well, you know, so. Yes, but it also, there's there's this phenomenon that phenomenologists of value like Mark Shaler talk about emotional contagion, right? Mm-hmm. Um other people express it in terms of mimesis. Uh, mm-hmm. This goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle discussing that as well. If um, if you're seeing everybody, so I mean, let's take one of our favorite media, right? Twitter. Um, you see everybody mm-hmm. acting like uh, angry jerks on Twitter. Then then after a while, it's it's tempting, even for us, you know, very rational people. And I'm I'm saying that a bit facetious. Yeah, speak for yourself on that <laughs> one, but sure. <laughs> to uh, to join in, right? And and. Uh, to say, oh, I'll get me some of that. Um, I've got some things <laughs> I'd like to say. Um, so it, it, mm-hmm. it's not as if, the, so the waving around, to use your metaphor, the waving around the sword, it's not totally uh, without effect. And, and you know, to, sure. to now target some stuff on, on the other side, you know, uh, here in America, there are a lot of people who are lined up with, with you know, whatever we're going to call them, uh, the Trump coalition, the Republicans, uh, conservatives of a certain sort, because uh, white, white nationalists, yeah, whatever you want to yeah, call them, yeah, because I, I don't think that many of them are actually conservative any, in any real respect uh, anymore, mm-hmm. given, given older, more conservative understandings of conservatism. Um, they seem to have abandoned a lot of their their precepts. Um, yeah. but they are they are really angry. Um, it was interesting. I went to a Trump rally, uh, Trump victory mm-hmm. here in, in Wisconsin, and wrote about it. Uh, shortly after uh, the election, and uh, boy, was that eye-opening! Uh, and it's interesting. <laughs> they are think, very angry. <laughs> what's that? They are indeed very angry. You're not wrong. Yeah, and a lot of the ang- and some of the things that they're angry about, I think they they do. You know, economic issues. There there is something there. Uh, there. There was a lot of discussion, you know, in the last two years about what's the one thing that's motivating Trump voters, and, and there isn't any one thing, right? There's there's a number of different things. Some of them. Um, love the idea of being able to indulge their their white nationalism, and they were just looking for an outlet. Some of them are genuinely uh, upset about being economically displaced and, and are looking for somebody who's going to fix it, and, and Trump promised to fix a lot of things that just haven't mm-hmm. happened. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of them vote against their class interests because of that. Uh, um, there's a discourse right now going on on Twitter about, uh, you know, do, do real men belong to unions, you know, uh, mm-hmm. stuff. But so so anyway, um, they yeah, there's it, a lot of toxic toxic masculinity involved. Yeah. And they may and they may genuinely have reasons to so a lot of these people have genuine reasons to be angry about something. 
but mm-hmm. it gets directed into this toxic ball that can be then directed anywhere. Um, and, and, you know, then there's a bunch of familiar targets lined up. And I would say there's a lot more vicious anger on the side of the right at this point in time than there is on the side of the left in America. I, you know, I'm not talking necessarily about other places. And, and then I don't think that's been the case uh, my entire lifetime. Um, I think at, at some points in time, it might have been more. Because <laughs> they were winning, so they weren't so angry. Well, or, or they just hadn't been mobilized as much. I mean, here, here's mm-hmm. where we can, you know, if you want to shift the conversation a bit, there's there's a lot of discussions out there about, um, you know, is is the uh, Trump administration a, a new form of, of, you know, fascism? And, and one of the areas that I, I worked in in the past is fascist studies. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're often very careful about how we use that term. We're like, well, listen, there's, there's, you know, the definitions tend to be sort of Wittgensteinian family resemblance things. And here's like, you know, seven traits from, from this person, or here's 10 traits from this person. Seven traits of highly successful fascists. Yeah. I, I'm, well, cause you don't want to just, you don't want to like uh, do what, what people did back in, in the, the eighties and just like anybody who's who's mean to you as a fascist because then the word loses its 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 significance sure. you know and so you you want to say that there's some sort of totalizing vision you want to say that there's what we call palingenesis uh an appeal back to you know a mythical past um and one of the key things is the mobilization of the masses and this is part of what distinguishes say a fascist regime from just a plain old conservative military dictatorship uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, some sort of corporate state or something like that. You have to be taking the ordinary people and mobilizing them so that they'll do um, stuff that, that supports the, the regime and its, its objectives, um, sometimes to their own detriment. Um, right. And that's what did happen in, in Nazi Germany. That's what they were trying to do in, in France with Action Francaise, arguably the first proto-fascist organization, the Integral Nationalists. They tried to pull it off in Portugal, couldn't make it happen. Uh, kind of did it in Spain, kind of did it in Romania, kind of did it in Hungary, but, but not, not quite to the extent. But this mobilizing the masses, it's a lot easier to do now with, with social media. And yeah, though at the same time, I'm, I'm skeptical of it happening here on a large scale still, because because of the the general quality of life of people in this country and because of the general laziness of people in this country, <laughs> I remain skeptical of large scale civil war. Though I imagine there will be more violence. That's the thing it doesn't have to be civil war. It, it can, sure, it can be targeting. Uh, you know, it could be crystal knock. I understand. Well, or or it can be you know turning in. Um, Right now, the, the, the main targets are, are immigrants, Muslims, uh, sure. Hispanics can be, you know, uh, turning them into uh, immigration. Um, it can mm-hmm. be demonstrating outside of their places. It can, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which a, a person can be mobilized. Yeah. Um, and, you know. And we can be counter mobilized by being super angry about it, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, so if you think about it in terms of left and right, every time that the left really does get angry and then people start doing something, they, they provide um, more uh, narrative props to, to people on, on the right. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're just screwed, Craig. Right? If, if we don't have the anger, we don't have enough passion to act. But if we do have the anger, we just give them more props. Yeah, the Stoics are right in, in saying that, like Seneca says, anything that you, you can do through anger, you can also do through practical reason. 
Um, but that's assuming that that somebody really is, you know, practically rational. And yeah, I'm not even sure that's 100% true, though. Do you really feel like you can successfully do all of the same things without? So when you say you, if, if, you're, yeah. if you're asking, can you, Greg Sadler, do everything successfully through practical reason without, you know, having it be, let's use the platonic stuff, having Thumos be its ally, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can some people do it? Yes, because I've seen it happen. Um, but those are better people than me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not even convinced that like we've seen it happen. But it is an interesting question. I realize we're running a little short on time, but this has been uh, <laughs> really interesting stuff. And I wanted to get the uh, the lightning round in here at the end. Do you have any final thoughts though on on anger? Yeah, I I, I do want to really push again for ancient mm-hmm. medieval thinkers. Uh, mm-hmm. Being a, a really untapped resource, even if somebody just picks up, you know, Seneca's on anger, or um, you know, some of the the Aristotelian stuff, or another great treatise, Plutarch's on the um, the restraining of anger. If they just pick that up mm-hmm. and read through it, they're going to get something out of it that they're probably not going to get out of most self help and and psychological literature available right now. Fair enough. All right, we'll link some of that in the show notes too. Um, that's, that's good stuff. Okay. So, uh, our realism, anti-realism lightning round, which I love so much. Uh, if you're not familiar, just remind you of the rules, right? I'm going to name some things and you have to say they're real or not real. Oh, those are your only options. All right. Okay. You don't have to define what the word real means. So you can weasel your way out of it afterwards, whatever you end up saying, but, um, it tends to be pretty entertaining to put all of these together. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. First up, the external world. Oh, that's real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Uh, I'll say it's real, although I'm not sure what exactly. Okay. Qualia? Um, I'm going to say not real. Not real? Okay. Free will? It's real. But it's, real. Not, it's not what everyone says it is. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, selves? Oh, they're, yeah, they're real, kind of. Selves are real? Okay. Uh, personal identity? Uh, yeah, that's real. Okay. Genders? Um, yes, provided we're not saying that there's just two. Okay. Uh, races? No, they're not. Okay. Not real. Species? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Okay. All right. Morality? Yes, uh, that that that's real, but what most people pass off as it isn't. Sure, it's the answer for most things that are real, right? Uh, rights? Yeah, they're real. Okay. Knowledge? That's real. Okay. Modalities? Oh, do you mean like necessary, possible, impossible, that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, those aren't real. Okay. Gods? Um, gods, plural? Well, or singular. Yeah, I'd say uh, real then. Okay. Fictional characters? Oh. Uh, no, they're not real. I won't, I won't hedge it anymore. Yeah, they're not. Okay. <laughs> um, society? Yeah, that's real. Okay. Numbers? Definitely real. 
abstract entities? Um, again, it depends on what we mean. So I'm going to say not real. Not real. Chairs? Yeah, they're real. Okay. <laughs> Science? Oh. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to just fall over on the fence on the side of real. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. And natural laws. Uh, yeah, I guess they're, they're real again, kind of, you know, falling out of the <laughs> fair fence. enough. Yeah. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Uh, you know, good and good enough. Um, have you learned anything about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, most of the time when people say, are you a realist, anti-realist, all that sort of stuff, I say, I'm not much of an ist, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm, I probably am a realist, you know. On the majority of things? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> all right, fair enough. I'm sure you will be canceled on Twitter later. That would be great. <laughs> this is it's pretty much the whole purpose of this section is to get people to cancel each other on Twitter for my amusement. Well, how do you cancel somebody on Twitter? Do you mean you unfollow them or... Oh, you know, you comment on it and you say that they're canceled and then they're canceled. And that's pretty much that. Oh, is that real? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) this is canceling real. I'm adding that to the list right now. (laughs) Canceled. Um, Great. All right. So to finish things out today. So another one you could ask there, uh, are privations real? Uh, Privations. Oh, the absence of things. Yeah. Is that, I mean, like a hole is a hole real or. Okay. Holes. Yeah. Is, that's um, true uh something that ought to be there that isn't there is that real you know mm-hmm. i do love trevor to always add to this list eventually the whole episode should be this list <laughs> it won't be a lightning round after a while <laughs> right it's very slow lightning um all right so what do you have for us for making the void livable to wrap us up here well uh that's a good that's a good one um i mean if we if we think about anger epictetus has this you know, a lot of interesting things to say about it. And I guess one of the things that he says that that's quite helpful, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to translate very loosely and a, a bit crudely. Is when, you can say butcher. It's fine. You can say butcher. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is going to be crude though. So when somebody, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is behaving a certain way and you're tempted to say, like he talks about that, that person's a thief, right? But you, you know, we would say well, that person's an asshole and you get angry at them because, you know, they're responsible for, for being that. Epictetus says, um, well, you know, they do that, that sort of stuff because they think that makes sense for them. And, and you know, instead of like focusing on how wrong they are uh, and how they should know better, you can say that poor bastard, you know, they really ought to know better because they had the opportunity to get an education and look, they, you know, they, they came from a decent, you know, upbringing and, and they're still acting like an asshole. Um, well, you know, you don't have to get angry. Instead, if you want to feel anything towards them, you can feel what Epictetus calls eleos, and we translate it as pity, but a better mm-hmm. term for it is compassion. And that doesn't mm-hmm. have to do anything with not calling their, their behavior out or um, telling them that they shouldn't behave that way. It's just, it's just, it makes it more livable for us if we don't have to be angry at everybody for just for being the kind of uh, poor bastards that they are, including our... Yeah, I like that a lot. And we could we could also think that way about like I get I get ticked off at past Greg a lot because he's a uh-huh. crazy bastard himself and leaves me work that now I have to do in the present. Right. So maybe you know like you can not get so angry at yourself too for that. 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm super obsessed with moral luck, so this all rings bells for me. I, I totally agree with all of this. Okay. That's what we, I mean, I mean, genuinely, that's what I teach our cultists, that, like, the the salute, you know, the the first thing you realize is that no, no one has any control over anything, and then you have compassion and humility, hopefully, for, you know, especially compassion, like you said, for people who do horrible things because, you know, they're their lives are still horrible too. And they have the unfortunate luck of being that particular kind of person. Yeah. Quite true. And that does suck for them. They just well, don't realize it yet. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we can't necessarily assume that it will actually suck for them, but you know, even if it doesn't actually lead to a horrible life for them, I still think that it is, uh, a compassion worthy thing to feel for someone who doesn't get to, in my opinion, flourish thoroughly. You know, my, my, I'll, I'll say this, uh, my mentor, uh, Garth Gillen, he, he was a pretty angry guy and I, mm-hmm. I went to a restaurant with him one time and we got some, uh, decent service. But then the, the person who was the manager who was like running the cashier at the front, he was, he was just a dick and I don't remember exactly what he did. And Garth, uh, said to him just very deadpan, he says, uh, just let me uh, congratulate you on the personality that you've developed. It's really quite mm-hmm. And then turned on his heel and walked out. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, thank you so much, Greg. This has been wonderful. We're sadly out of time, but do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Sure. So if if you go to YouTube and you just uh, type in Gregory B. Sadler, um, I'm pretty much the only one out there shooting philosophy stuff. Easy enough to find. My business uh, website is reasonio.com. And, um, you know, you can find me on, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's highly cool. recommend the Twitter follow. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I, I do a lot more on Twitter than I do on Facebook. And I, I say a lot more stuff, you know, mm-hmm. wilder stuff on, on Twitter than I do on Facebook. <laughs> well, it's what Twitter, Twitter is for, right? We're to habituate all of ourselves into being monsters. Yeah. And it, it, it's, uh, I don't know. I seem to have better people to follow on Twitter than I do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Pages. There's yeah. a whole philosophy Twitter world. That's really fun. True. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you to our listeners and patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our new patrons, grand pre Hunter Ash, John Bartlett and general contact unit problem child. Uh, thank you to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. The person who controls the spice controls the void. Volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you especially to our top-tier patron, as always, the wonderful Dave Maslich. Thank you so, so much. You all make this entirely possible. Uh, If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Follow us at Twitter at ETVPod. And support us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 